Thank you, Alan. It's wonderful to be able to share with you this morning. Um, Just before I do, when we were praying, I picked up this, and I don't know who put it there or how it got there, but it says the following, God's crazy about you. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he will listen. He could live anywhere in the universe, and he chose your heart. What about the Christmas gift he sent you in Bethlehem? Not to mention that Friday at Calvary. Face it, he's crazy about you. I don't know where that came from, but when I read it, I thought, yeah, that's fantastic. Wonderful, it is indeed. This morning, um, my notes have got all sorts of scribbles on them, and that makes me a little nervous. Um, because you put something down during the week and then as you go along, you kind of scribble all over. But I'm going to be preaching this morning about something which is really, really, really central in my heart. It's something which I hold most dear to me. It's something, it's a hill that I'll die on, if I can put it that way. And uh, it's a, a topic which, unfortunately, has caused so much division over the centuries throughout history all over the world. It's something which is actually should be unifying us, but it's something which has caused people to fight against each other. And I'm going to be talking this morning about the church, God's church on earth, and I've subtitled it God's Eternal Plan for the Ages to Come. Now, there have been so many books written about the church and so many different aspects that you can come to, and the last time I, I was studying theology, I remember some of the titles we had to read, The Church on the Other Side. Uh, shaping of things to come, uh, reimagining spiritual formation, uh, the purpose-driven church, the lay-driven church. These are all books that were part of our reading, and they all had to do church, and, and they're all motivated in different ways. And people have looked at the church, and they have um, looked at Scripture and built the church out of the same Scriptures. And so you get some churches which say, no, we're not a church, and we're not a denomination. Please don't call us a denomination all the way through to others which have a very structured church. And when you ask them, well, where do you structure this on? How do you come to this? They'll all go, well, it's in the Bible, isn't it? Um, And very often you'll be pointed to the pastoral epistles as they're known, um, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And in fact, if you go to a theological college and you do book studies on, on those books, you can get a credit for pastoral studies. Tick. But in fact, they were never that. An epistle is not a wife of an apostle. It's a letter. And the epistles were written... Uh, for a purpose and an occasion. And those epistles were, in fact, not written about the structure of the church, although it's mentioned in there. And it was only in the 18th century where I think it was a man called Anton van Hull called them that for the first time. And since then, everybody seems to base something so vastly different from each other on the same scriptures. The church, I said uh, last time I preached, was like a beachhead in enemy territory. And I really believe that we as a church are a bit like God's DNA, planted into a world which is lost and a world which is at war. And we come into that place as, as a beachhead, as, as a bit of God's DNA, saying, here's, here's hope. And that's what the church should be. But unfortunately, as I said, so often it it's not, doesn't look like that. Because we look for something in the Bible to build a movement on, often. We often look, go to the, the Scripture to look for something where we can build a structure when I was in ministry in the, in the church, ooh, almost said denomination, they would have hated me if I'd said that, but the church grouping that I was part of, we had a three-part manual. Beautiful, huh? Eh? It was like a how to do things in three parts. 
and it had everything from ordaining elders to you name it and whatever. And, and yeah, um, but the Bible doesn't come like that. Now, in the Old Testament, when Moses and others called people together, God's faithful, they were known as the Chahal Yahweh in, in, in the Hebrew, the faithful gathering. In the New Testament, we find it changes. Not the building, but the people were called in the Greek was the ecclesia, the ecclesia, or the called out ones. And so they were those who were called out of the world to be part of this church. And the, with all things, and this is where I want to start from, and, and I'm going to come at a different angle. And Alan, I hope that you don't get phone calls this week, because once before Alan said, I appreciate when you, when you preach because nobody phones and complains and stuff. There's no controversy. Well, hopefully there won't be any controversy, but um, I want to come from a different perspective. As with everything in life, everything starts with God. God is all, and God is everything. And uh, I want to just launch off this, this message this morning, reading out of the book of Romans. And again, you might be going, well, you're preaching about the church, so this is a bit of a weird place to, to come from. And, I, and I've read this passage before when I've preached, but I think this is one of my all-time favorites. I love this. Because Paul, when he wrote the, the, the book of Romans, he has a lot of theological stuff, and he's talking all about, you know, how, how um, the gospel has come, and first to the Jews, now to the Gentiles, and all that, that happens. And then he gets to chapter 11, and at the en- end of chapter 11, he builds up, and, and, and it almost feels as if he gets so excited he can't contain himself any longer. And it's known as the doxology, and it goes as this. Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? And those are obviously rhetoric questions. No one, obviously. And then he says this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that passage, for from him and through him and to him are all things. When I think of the church, that's what comes to mind. You see, what it highlights is the church is from God, the church is through God, and the church is to God. If all things are that, then we are also that. But what does that mean? And as I mull over it, it doesn't mean that God has given us a structure where you've got a bishop or a pope or an archbishop or whatever, 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 and the deacons and, and how you do things. You see, it's not that. The Bible doesn't give us that. The Bible rather gives us a way of living as a church, a way of being as a church. And so as I look at this and I start off and I say, well, if it's all from God, who is this God? And what actually is it that he's given to the church? Up front. Because you see, God is a God who gives. Isn't that amazing? Just just stop and think about that for a moment. God is a God who gives. Why is that? Well, it's because God is love. And when you think of that, we were reminded at the beginning of the year um, by Costa Mitchell about how God is this community. He's a community but of unity a community of oneness, a Godhead, in this dance of love known as the perichoresis. And if you love, you cannot be inward-looking. It's impossible. By the definition love, you can't be looking in and consumed by who you are by yourself. Now, understand this. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. God has this unity 
of greatness, of oneness, doesn't need us. But because he's love, he reaches out. He's outward looking. And because he's love, he created us. Because that's who he is. When, um, the, the week before I got ordained when I was in ministry and we were living in Cape Town, I remember clearly it was, uh, it, there was a kind of a weight on me. And I went up to Rhodes Memorial, which is yeah, the hashtag Rhodes Must Fall place. And uh, I sat there on the side of the mountain and you get this beautiful view out across Cape Town if you, if you know Rhodes Memorial. And I was all alone and I had my Bible and I was kind of like preparing my heart for that Sunday. And I remember looking out and I could actually see the church next to Rondebosch Common, which is where, where I was ministering in, and, and all the houses, and it was, it was just so vivid. And while I was sitting there, I, I turned over a leaf, and there was a little insect. And then I turned over another leaf, and there was another little insect. And then I got consumed by turning over leaves and looking around, and I was just so stunned and so amazed by the beauty of creation. And I looked at all of that, and I thought, wow, there's all of this. God has created all of this. And then I turned around, and above me was looming Table Mountain. There was Nursery Ravine behind and Devil's Peak. And I had this sense of there's the little intricate details, which even now as scientists go into it, they're amazed the more they look at it. All these little things. And then this huge towering mountain behind me. But it wasn't just that. I then looked out, and I saw the traffic and the people and the houses And I then had this real sense of that was God's pinnacle of creation. You see, God not only created the little things, he not only created the mountain, but this God who is giving, this loving God, poured out his love story by creating us. And at that time, I remember being so consumed by it and thinking, wow, the source of all of this is God. And the church in its purest sense, is that creation of God, worshipping him. Now, a theological way of looking at at scriptures, and it's something that I I like to kind of look at it like this, is there was before the fall, where God created. There's the the model for, for relating to God. There's a model for marriage. That's the way that God intended for us to be living and worshipping him in eternity. And then, of course, after Genesis 3, we have the fall, And then we have this period of time where it's not like it should be. But there's there's a way we're moving towards how it should be. And then after the resurrection, we then have a place where we can go back to that space of before the fall to once again live in that space where as God had intended and created it to be. And so in a pure form, the church is, is that creation of God, his image that he poured out into human form, who worship him for eternity. That's, that's in its essence, the church. But then, we're told that God created a man. And then he looked at that man and said, no, but it's not good. Now, men, relax, it's, uh, we're okay. But it wasn't good. And we're told that God then created a woman as that man's helper. Now, before we get too deeply into this, men, it's not because we're useless and we need like, somebody to come and tie our shoes. And women, that's not a helper of, like, pass me the spanner, dear, I'm the appy to the mechanic. In fact, the helper suitable in the Hebrew is the Ezer Kinecto. And the Ezer 
being helper, is only used in Scripture for God and woman, by the way, amen? God is Israel's easer, redeemer. Nowhere else is that word used except to describe woman as being man's helper. But then there's fortunately a word suitable, because otherwise woman would be like elevated to God, which she isn't. So she is God, man's helper, suitable. But what is it suitable for? Why is, is woman uh, man's helper, and what's this all about? And here's the thing. You see, God poured his, his image onto the earth, but his image can't be one person because God is a plurality of, of being. God is a community. And so woman had to be the helper of man in order to help that unity reflect God's image and be his community on earth. Without them, we couldn't be reflecting God and who he is. And so what we find here is that God created one, then he created the other, and he brought them together as a community of oneness. Genesis 2.24, and they will become one flesh. So those of you who teach maths, I'm sorry to say that one plus one equals one. That's the way it is. We have one man, one woman, and when you add them together, you've got one. And all through Scripture, and as we saw reflected yesterday, even in that marriage ceremony, the marriage and the church is seen as, as, as a, something which is interchangeable and it's used to illustrate it as we go along. And so the pure essence of the church, untouched by the fall, untouched by sin, is this community which God has created to worship him and to reflect his image on the earth. So as a church, what it says to me is that we are not called just to believe. We're called to belong. And that we are created for community. None of us can fulfill God's purposes alone in our lives. We need one another. You know, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, and I often think about this, they prayed all the time. They prayed the Shema in the morning and the afternoon and all the rest of it. They knew how to pray. And then Jesus teaches them and says, this is how you should pray. And he gives us the, the um, Lord's Prayer as we know it. But notice what it is contained in that. It says the following. Our Father, our, plural, give us our daily bread. Forgive us, deliver us. Notice that? When we're praying, we're not praying, my Father, give me, give, it's give us, our. There's a sense here of community. There's a sense in this prayer that God's first concern is what the church is rather than what we do. So throughout Scripture, God is teaching us who we are as a church. He doesn't give us a rule and list of, well, this is how you need to meet and this is a structure that needs to be, etc. And we must always, being as a church, must always precede doing. For what we do will be according to what we are. Notice that? What we do will be according to what we are. Being is more important than doing. The Bible is full of one another's. Love one another, serve one another, etc., etc. We know them. How about the togethers? We are put together, joined together, built together, members together, heirs together, fitted together, held together. We'll be caught up together. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Sometimes we miss that. We lose that. We're together. Sarepta, I love you. I have to tell you that. Yeah. And I hope you love one another because we are put together. We're joined together. We're heirs together. And I've said it before, but sometimes we have this anemic view of God's um, sacrifice for the church. Yes, 
one by one, we come into relationship with God. Don't mishear me here. Don't phone Ellen and say that I'm saying you're saved through the church, as the Roman Catholics would claim. No. One by one, you're brought into salvation. But you're brought into a salvation which includes the person next to you and behind you and in front of you. Because that's who we are. We're the church of God. I, I just think back to a time where I'd just come out of the army. Um, I had, was in a broken state. Um, I went to a church in Cape Town where God did something amazing. He just ministered deeply into my life through where others would have taken weeks to break habits that I had. It was just instantly that evening. Didn't smoke a cigarette after that evening, just like that. It was just amazing. And these were strangers to me. It was through somebody I knew who was in the army who had invited me, and I went to that church, and God spoke, and uh, uh, Kathy Crompton, I think her name was, Auntie Kathy, an old lady, brought a word, said, there's a room, if that's for you, go there. I went there, and I had to get driven home. But my family was in a bit of crisis at the time, too. My mother was really ill. In fact, she just tried to take her life. And um, this happened. The next day, there was a knock on the door. Door opened, and there was Stuart and Joanne West. He's currently the head at Herschel. We were in his cell group with a tray and supper. He said, hi, I'm Joanne. I live down the road. This is for you. My mother was stunned. Yeah, I didn't even know these people. I just kind of started going to the church. For two weeks, every single day, there was a knock on the door. Hello, Mrs. Carroll, here I am. This is supper for you. Until eventually my mom said, please stop. <laughs> Can you imagine the effect that that had on our family? A, a family of believers who had gone through crisis, and here was a body who came around saw a need with the love of God and came and brought that need. That's what it's about. That's what it's about, living together in God's love, in a community together. When, when our older son was just a little baby, I mean, that was 20 years ago. Sure, it seems like just yesterday. But when Josh was just a little baby, I was, te- I was teaching in the Department of Education then in Cape Town, and there was a, a, a mix-up, and um, I was in a temporary post. There were these kind of reassigning posts, and then... For two months, I didn't get a salary. I was working, and I, was in, I should have got one, but this is the way it happened. And I remember Sandy and I sitting going, what do you do? How do you feed this? I don't know how old Josh was. He must have been five or six months old or whatever the case, etc. Doorbell rang. Door opened, and there's a packet of food sitting on the doorstep. And I remember it was exactly stuff that we needed, too. People didn't know that. Again, that just happened. I remember the pastor from the church coming and saying, here's some money. And when I got paid, and I got back paid, I went to him and I said, Dave, thanks. Here's the money back. He said, no, it's from our war chest. That's for you. Just be blessed by it. That's the church in action, folks. That's God's love working its way out in action. Because it was not good for people to be alone, God gave us our very most valuable possession, this community because it reflects him and who he is. But then we know that in Genesis 3, things were, went wrong. This community went pear-shaped, and we were not only isolated from God, but we were also isolated from one another. And we know the story as it goes through and how God was faithful 
even in that time. And so the church that is from God as a reflection of who he is as a community of oneness is also through God. Because you see, God didn't leave it there and go, okay, well, you've done that. Tough. He came out in a rescue plan. And I, when I teach scripture at school, I love to talk about it. It's like 007 and God's the, it's like the rescue plan and he's the special agent coming to, to come sort this out. Because God is an initiating God. God is a God who reaches out. God is a God who loves. And it's through God that this rescue plan came into being. And so we have found the Old Testament, which is a forward-looking covenant, and where God puts things in place and he says, it's almost like it's coming, guys. Hang in there. I'm with you. I've made a promise. I'm a covenant-keeping God. We're on a journey. It's coming. Stay with me. And then, of course, Jesus came. How awesome is that? The God of the universe who created time and space. He created time and space. He does not need to be in this time and space. He didn't even need to create us. I often wonder, what did the Godhead do? They were sitting there once in eternity going, hmm, let's create something. I don't know. You know, I, I sometimes think, what was the trigger for creating the world and for creating us? But this God stepped into our space. This God became this God. And that to me is the most awesome thing. And he spent three years with his disciples. And he taught them how to relate to God, how to relate to the world and others, the Sermon of the Mount and and other things that we read in the scriptures. He taught them how to separate themselves from the corrupt religion of the Pharisees. He taught them about how to be a, a new community, how to embody the kingdom of God, the parables of the kingdom. In my scripture lessons, I carry on. And, I, and just actually now with my grade fours and fives, we've just finished Abraham and we've moved on to the new covenant and how that you don't have to sacrifice Larry the lamb anymore. And we now get to, to Jesus being the lamb of God and the kingdom. And we've just done the parables of the kingdom. And it's an amazing thing where I can say to them, is the kingdom of God in Highbury? And the realization is, yes, it can be. Where is it? It's not the chapel. That's a building. Where is it? It's there and it's there and it's there and it's there. How do you know it's here? Because we follow the king of the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? God has created. The kingdom of God is here. And then I said something to them which shocked them, and I'm going to say it to you as well. Because, of course, one little oak always says, well, the kingdom of God is in church. And I say, yes, the kingdom of God comes together in the church on a Sunday to worship the king. But even today, there are people here not in the kingdom. And for the little boys, it's, oh, but they're a church. I say, well, in Highbury, not everybody's in the kingdom of God, right? Because somebody could say, I don't believe in God. And if they don't believe in God, they can't be in the kingdom because they don't follow the king. And you're entitled to say that. That's your choice. And there may be people in the church building who come together just because, well, you do that. It's what you do on a Sunday or they've always done it. So even in here, the kingdom of God might not be everywhere. But God's here and there's a lot of his kingdom here. And we come together to worship and to praise him. And that's just such a beautiful, wonderful thing. So God, God in, in the form of Jesus, spent this time teaching his disciples what to do. And then Jesus gave his life and he died. Just even that. Just think of that, church. Think of that. The God of creation who reduced himself into a form of a human gave his life. But then we know it doesn't stop there because he rose again. (laughs) 
Sure, he rose again and made it possible for ordinary people like us to be transformed into kingdom builders, members of this new community, this new church. But before Jesus was crucified in John chapter 17, there's that beautiful high priestly prayer, as it's become known. And he prays there knowing that his time has come and he's going to be crucified. And he prays for his disciples. Now, I've often sat there and I've thought, what did he pray about? He knew that there was going, these guys' worlds were going to collapse. He knew that, that there was going to be turmoil. Just out of interest from what we know, Simon Peter was crucified head downwards. James was beheaded by Herod. John was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Andrew was crucified on a St. Andrew's cross. Philip was martyred at Heropolis. Bartholomew was a missionary to Armenia and then beaten to death. Thomas was martyred in India. Matthew in Ethiopia. James was crucified in Egypt. Jude was martyred in Persia. Simon was crucified. Judas, well, he hanged himself. And Saul or Paul was beheaded in Rome by Nero. There were troubles on the way. What would you or I have prayed for if we were Jesus? I have to say that if I was him, I probably would have said, Father, please remove this trouble from them. That would have been my prayer. But what did Jesus pray? And very often, the last things that you pray and say when you are on your deathbed are the things that are deepest in your heart. The things that people say when they know that their, their life on earth has come to an end is that thing, that, that kernel which is like just deepest and comes out. And, the, and this is what Jesus prayed. Father, protect the disciples so that they may be one as we are one. Notice that? Father, protect the disciples so that they may be one, this community, as we are one, because we are God's image on the earth. We are his community. The thing deepest in God's heart was to protect the unity of the church because we are God's reflection, his image on earth. His life passion was about the, the new community. He knew that the church had an eternal destiny. You know, the church is the only thing. We're the only thing that's going to continue into eternity. Isn't that amazing? The people around you, this community, we're the only thing that is going to last into eternity. And then Jesus went further. He didn't just pray for his disciples, but in verse 20, he looked ahead into the future and he prayed for us, for the church to come. And he prayed that same prayer for us, that we would model God's unity into the world. Brothers and sisters, our world is a community-starved place. Everything about our world tells us that we do, must do it our own way, that it's about us, dog eat dog, push to the top. Everything about it is you succeed, because you're worth it, aren't you? I mean, just listen to the cosmetics ads and all the rest of it too. Everything about the world in which we live tells us that we are the most important and that we need to push ourselves. But God comes opposite and he says, no, you are here for a community. Jesus had such a high view of the church that he gave his life for us. Wow. But then that's not all. Because the church is from God, through God, but it's also to God. So we know the end picture. Wow. You see, in, in, in Ephesians, it says that 
their aim is to bring all things into Christ. And we get, have a picture of this bride of Christ being reunited with him. Throughout Scripture, it talks, we have pictures of where we're going to, that we will be in eternity worshiping together our Father. Just yesterday, I was struck also, Eileen, by the amazing gathering that we had. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, there's a church. We came together under this tent in a drizzle. And there were not only people of all skin tones and shades and languages. There were people from other countries, African countries, from the UK, from the States. I mean, that's what I know of. All together in this beautiful unity, celebrating what God has done amongst us. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. Well, I'll start at 26. So in Christ Jesus, you, that's us, are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Isn't that amazing? You see, the people around you, it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're the MD of a company or a street sweeper. It doesn't matter if you are a beauty queen or just Miss Ordinary. It doesn't matter if you're a sports star or just Mr. Ordinary. It doesn't matter because all that has been taken away and God has made us one. One body, one community reflecting him. Sure. So as I stand here and I look at it and I say, Sarepta, here we are in 2016. What is, what, what is our response? As we look around... My challenge is, how do you view the people sitting around you? Are, are we just names on a list that when it's your birthday, it gets read out in that week? Or do we actually belong in this place? Because we call to belong, not to just be on a membership list. Are we committed to being together? I love coming to church. I love it because I meet Athelie, for one thing, and I get my, my weekly hug from her. But besides that, God says things, and I might miss out. I love that because we're on a journey together. Monday prayer meetings. Now, I know us included, we have to take boys to choir practices and things like that. But when we can, we love to be on a Monday to pray. Before church, prayer meeting. Just to be there, to give the meeting to God and say, here we are, come amongst us. Open the heavens, we prayed this morning. Are we part? Are we belonging to that? Are we committed to one another? Do we love those around us like Christ loved the church? Are we using the church rather than loving it? Because we can do that too, sometimes without even realizing it. Do we experience life together? Again, when we had our children, I remember the, the food people brought and how we shared baby clothes and how we used to have, the moms used to get together and pray for each other and those community things. You see, if we're one and if we're a church and we love each other and belong to one another and, and treasure one another, that's the way it's going to be. I was so blessed last week because I was frot sick. And uh, I spent two days in bed. I couldn't quite justify more. But Alan came around and uh, Norman as well. And 
I was lying in my PJs in my bed and they came into the bedroom and they prayed for me and anointed me with oil. That's wonderful. Isn't that amazing? And it wasn't just a physical prayer that they prayed for because it was deeper stuff that was happening. That's beautiful, knowing that, that the physician who created me will send my brothers along to come and pray for me. Let's not take that lightly. Let's, let's value that. We've got to guard our unity, brothers and sisters. We've got to guard our unity. If you haven't heard it yet, I've been preaching about unity this morning as the nature of the church. Because that unity reflects God's creation and who we are in God's creation. The world, Satan wants to beat us down. Marriages are under attack. Are we guarding that? That beautiful thing that we celebrated yesterday, are we guarding that? That needs to be guarded. And if we look around us and we see something happening, we need to be standing with one another, encouraging one another, helping one another. What about our children? They're under attack. There's so many influences out there. Together, are we guarding that? Are we cherishing that? Are we loving that? Just one another. Are we living the one another? This is my challenge. I'm preaching to me, by the way, so don't... don't <laughs> and we need to be doing this. Here's the question, and I'm going to end off with a, with a bit of a video clip as well, but in the beginning I said... Are we willing to die on this hill? When we think of our brothers and sisters here, is this a hill we're willing to die on? Because our Lord Jesus died on a hill for this. And if he was willing to die on a hill, naked, humiliated, scorned, beaten, and the clip you're going to see is nothing. Some of you might flinch at some of the images you see. It's nothing. What we see is the Hollywood painted picture. Jesus' back was ripped and torn. He died for us. He was willing to die on that hill. And my question and my challenge this morning is, are we willing to die on this hill for what he died for? So as we watch this video, let's just contemplate in your own way, just respond to it and respond to God.
Dios me 